the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Okay, and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pion. This afternoon, I am honored to have Art Agnos with us. Um, He was the 39th mayor of San Francisco and the regional head of the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development from 1993 to 2001. Art, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Um, I wanted to start, for those of you who may not be familiar with your work and you've done so much about it, if you could just give us a brief overview of your history serving the public. Well, I started my career as a social worker and um, over time became a a little frustrated with the lack of power that um, I had as a social worker working in low-income public housing projects and with elderly um, developments that were a part of public housing. Um, I found myself trying to help people who were overwhelmed with all kinds of issues that kept them stuck in poverty and um, in a condition that was not in their best interest. And so I drifted into politics to try to create and improve on policies that were supposed to make life better for people in need in our country, whether they were young or old. Um, And so I uh, started working with a wonderful a state legislator who became Speaker of the House. His name was Leo McCarthy, and he was my mentor, big brother, and uh, just uh, the person who inspired me to run for office myself as I watched him uh, create uh, the kind of policies that I hoped uh, would work for people that I cared about uh, as a social worker. And um, In 1975, I became a candidate for the state legislature representing uh, a half, the eastern half of San Francisco in uh, Sacramento, the state capital of of California. Uh, And it was there I began to become aware of the cannabis and marijuana issues as uh, great heroes like uh, Dennis Perone, started lobbying me as a policymaker now. Uh, It wasn't a hard sell as I listened to him um, explain what he thought were the benefits of marijuana. He was way ahead of his time, and we're now 20 years later just catching up, 30 years later just catching up to what he was telling us was the state of affairs in uh, in this industry, not industry, but in this uh, in this field, um, so he was really a visionary, um, and um, uh, helped introduce me in a policy sense to marijuana. Obviously, as a young man uh, in college, I was exposed, even though I didn't really use marijuana. Uh, my buddies uh, and classmates did uh, from time to time. But I never did. I was a little uh, nervous about it, quite frankly, uh, because I had been brought up in a way that this to perceive this as a drug to be to stay away from and all that kind of stuff. Um, when I came to San Francisco, um, marijuana was used by a lot of my friends, and I tried it once or twice, but it didn't do anything for me. And so uh, while I supported the policy, uh, as a state legislator and as a mayor, um, the 
use of it for me as a young person um, was not relevant. Uh, I wasn't interested in its uh, recreational characteristics or or benefits and didn't need any kind of um, medical benefits. But I intellectually and politically supported it because I accepted what people like Dennis, who were teaching uh, and edu- uh, uh, politicians like me, uh, what it could do. Of course, we saw it in vivid uh terms uh, during the AIDS crisis, and we can talk a little bit about that. But that's how I was introduced to it um, when I went into the state legislature and became a vote for uh, this kind of uh, improvement in um, our policy around uh, the use of marijuana. Um, It took a long time, and ultimately, the politicians never had the uh, capacity to pass it in the legislature until the people did, of course, as we know, in um, uh, 1996 with Proposition 215. That kind of broke uh, through, was the breakthrough, I think. And from then, a lot of other more positive things began to happen. I'd like to go back to where you're talking about, um, because you were mayor in San Francisco during a really critical time during the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, Mm -hmm. And when I was doing some reading about your past work, I noted that you had also arranged for the nation's first joint legislative session on the AIDS HIV epidemic um, with uh, Surgeon General Coop and also the president of the National Academy of Sciences, David Baltimore. Um, was there, I'd like to hear more about that. And I also wonder, no. was cannabis anything that was brought up for relief during those discussions at all? That was a momentous time in the whole struggle around AIDS because up until that time, uh, the president of the United States had never used the word, never uttered the word, um, uh, and uh, the entire Reagan administration uh, was hostile, except for Dr. Koop. He uh, uh, rejected the political uh, inhibitions and uh, focused on the medical importance of dealing with HIV AIDS. He used the word, he talked about it, he went around the country. And here in California, we also had a conservative governor who didn't want to address these kinds of issues. So we were kind of uh, by ourselves. But uh, thanks to uh, a connection that I had through a staff person who worked with me, uh, Larry Bush was his name, who had been in Washington and knew Dr. Koop's top staff people, we were able to get a connection to uh, him and uh, invite him to come to this joint session of the legislature. And uh, because he was part of a Republican uh, administration in Washington under President Reagan, um, Governor here also um, accepted the idea that he would come to California and speak on AIDS and um, So this was the first time there was ever any truly organized major uh, address from someone like the Surgeon General of the United States uh, to both houses 
of the legislature, the state Senate and the state assembly. We were gathered in the state assembly, and he was spectacular, just a truly magnificent uh, sight as he came in with a Navy kind of uniform, a, 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 a big imposing man who spoke with authority about medicine because he was an outstanding physician and uh, addressed the legislature for around uh, half an hour, if I remember correctly, speaking about AIDS and what this state and country needed to do to deal with this uh, awesome uh, issue that was going around the country and and was uh, hitting our city in particular. Uh, that was a breakthrough because to have someone of his stature coming from the political um, uh, from the political uh, area that he was engaged in in Washington with the Republican administration, it was a major breakthrough that. Uh, allowed a lot of people who were somewhat reticent about discussing AIDS and all that came with it, gave them permission to do it in public. And it was not a kind of uh, uh, verboten subject. Uh, he then came to San Francisco, where he visited uh, uh, the uh, 80, uh, Ward 86 at San Francisco General, and also uh, a couple of uh, coming like coming home hospice in the Castro, and again made a spectacular uh, figure in his uh, uniform as he went around. Uh, this was not some lefty uh, hippie type of uh, authority figure. This was a very conservative man in a military uniform who was speaking about the medical uh, uh, challenges that we were facing as a city and as a country. So he was a uh, major uh, catalyst in forcing us to deal with this issue outside of San Francisco and uh, making sure people understand this was not a gay disease, this was not a San Francisco problem, it was a human problem that impacted all of us in this country, indeed the world, um, and we needed to treat it as such. Um, so he was a, a, a spectacular catalyst, an impetus in moving the needle toward legitimacy in terms of responses to AIDS. It was not going to be dismissed um, uh, anymore. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you think that the humanizing of the people who were impacted by the AIDS epidemic, because there was, you hear the stories about, you know, how people were ostracized and how they were treated in the hospitals, because there was a lot of fear. Do you think that his work towards starting the conversation, creating normalization through conversation, which in turn created more compassion for the people and the families, everybody who was impacted by this. Do you, do you think that that had any impact on when we looked at cannabis as relief for a lot of these patients and how we were going to be able to create access and legitimize it? Do you, do you think there was impact involved with that? Well, I think that in, in, the big, in the big picture, he had an enormous impact for all the reasons that I've uh, uh, enunciated to, in our conversation here. He never uh, spoke, and quite frankly, I don't recall uh, cannabis 
as a specific item uh, being discussed in any of the conversations I had or any of the speeches that he made. Um, I think that issue came later uh, from or at the same time, but from activists like uh, like Dennis. Um, the medical world, as I remember, was not ready to embrace cannabis as an alternative to any other kind of uh, drugs uh, that might be that were traditionally used, any kind of drugs that were traditionally used um, to treat people's symptoms, pain, and all the rest of it. Um, uh, so the traditional drugs were what were used. Now, in San Francisco, thanks to Brownie Mary and, and Dennis, um, but Brownie Mary played a big role at the hospital where she was a, well, she was volunteer of the year in one of the years. I can't remember the specific year, but it was while I was there. And um, she, um, she taught the doctors. She taught the nurses that, that her brownies uh, that were obviously infused with cannabis um, were useful for the patients who had no other alternatives except hard drugs that left other kinds of uh, uh, residuals with them. So um, it was it was it was non-medical people who kind of at the outset uh, broke the ground. Uh, it and I'm not quite sure. To be very honest with you, I I can't pinpoint when organized medicine began to really understand and accept the notion that maybe this was something they needed to look into. Um, you know more about this stuff than I do, Sarah, so you probably can pin that point that, that time. But in the late 90s, uh, in the time when uh, Dr. Coop was here, cannabis was not seen as a, in general, in general, was not seen as a uh, useful tool. But as I said, at San Francisco General, they were doing everything and anything they thought would be useful um, in helping relieve the pain and the suffering of people with HIV AIDS, even if they knew it wasn't legal. Mm -hmm. But we won't go much further than that. <laughs> yeah. Ward, Ward 86 was really pivotal in, in bringing cannabis into the medical realm. Even now, when we're looking at um, cannabis used as medicine, it's, it's varying from practice to practice. Palliative care and oncology are the groups that tend to be the most open to it. And even so, like I remember when I went through my cancer treatment, my... My oncologist was supportive of me using it as an alternative, especially knowing that I was having directives from my mother being a cancer researcher and letting me know THC would help me with my nausea. Um, but the head of his practice wasn't for it at the time. He since changed his mind, but there's, there's still a lot that physicians need to know about it. I always find that it seems that palliative care tends to be the most open because their their biggest goal is to create relief for their patients any way possible, you know, as long as it's safe. Um, and since, you know, we, we know now, and, and this is something that we're still teaching healthcare professionals, that cannabis um, doesn't affect the brainstem, so it's not going to 
um, obstructed the essential functions of the body. So even more so, it, it becomes more of an option. Um, but I interrupted you. You were about to say something. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. Your comments are right on target. And I think one of the reasons why um, medicine has been slow to adopt this, and we're seeing wonderful signs of a breakthrough in in different areas of of this country where doctors are beginning to accept this and recommending it. That's how I uh, started, and we'll talk about that a little later. But I think that the fundamental reason why medicine has been slow to catch up with this, with with obvious wonderful exceptions, is because there has not been any big corporate money behind the industry until recently, as we've seen it begin to be uh, legalized in state after state, uh, both for med- medical use first, obviously, and, 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 and more recently uh, for recreational use. And so we're seeing uh, industry, corporate, seeing a profit possibility here. And so we're seeing them get into it. And then comes what they do in the, in the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry. They do the tests, they do the studies, and then they spend millions of dollars promoting those uh, new insights that come from uh, uh, case studies and, and uh, um, the public learns, as does medicine. And doctors Listen, receive these uh, studies and feel more comfortable uh, in recommending it to their patients. But the bottom line is we're way behind normal, the normal evolution of uh, pharmaceutical drugs that we see in the industry in this country because of the controversial nature of marijuana. And so that is just getting started. And I think in the next two to five years, you're going to see major studies coming from uh, big industries, corporations who have bought into this and see it as a major uh, profit center. And you will see studies that will prove uh, the value, both uh, medically and uh, for palliative care and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And along with those studies and as business starts to boom, I feel like there's going to be more and more that we have to be active in the way of policy. Because as we're seeing in a yep. lot of the states that are going recreational, um, we're seeing that they're being a little bit more negligent on the medical possibilities. Absolutely. Um, I, I had an experience in that um, uh, myself because... Uh, I do use uh, medical marijuana um, in a capsule form to sleep. I have, in, as I've gotten older, I've had trouble sleeping. I had open heart surgery and a variety of other ailments that have caused, that have disrupted my, what used to be good sleep. <laughs> so I take a, a, a capsule and I sleep like a baby, as they say. But I was traveling from California to Arizona, and I was afraid to take my medicine, my my medical cannabis with me, because it's illegal, it's not legal there, and what happens when they sniff, when the dogs sniff my uh, backpack where I have my 
capsules or what happens when they open the suitcase and you get arrested on the spot for something that is legal across the border. And that kind of uh, upside down kind of policy um, has to be straightened out uh, because we need one policy for this state and the same one. I'm sorry. We need the same policy state by state uh, and not each one makes up its own. Uh, that's where the federal government obviously steps in. And right now we have a hostile uh, federal government when it comes to this issue. And um, I doubt it'll happen uh, under President Trump. Um, and and, and uh, so we won't see that. And, we'll ha- and a user like me, a, a medical user like me, is going to have to carefully navigate where I go in this country with the medicine I need to sleep. Yeah, that's, um, that's, it's, it's discouraging. Because, I mean, if you, uh, if you wouldn't mind just describing for me like how you felt before you started using it for sleep and just like the difference that it's made for you now. Yeah, I was, I was grumpy. i was grumpy uh because i you know didn't sleep well wake up every two hours uh i used to say (laughs) i used to say i slept like a baby i slept for two hours woke up walked around for 45 minutes and went back for another two-hour nap and so i had three or four naps every night with three or four wake-ups every night watched a little tv bought some commercial Uh, products in a two uh, (laughs) o'clock infomercial Uh and all that kind of stuff. That's all gone uh, since uh, for the last two years um, when a doctor said, you ought to try this because Ambien is not good for you. I don't want you to use it on a regular long-term basis and nothing else that I know is, is, is as effective for people, other people that I know. So you ought to try it. And I did, and it was an instant uh, success with me and my wife, for that matter. So um, it is uh, a wonderful product that uh, I'm very grateful for and am very happy to talk about with other seniors. And what I find with a lot of other seniors who I'm 80 years old, by the way. And so when I talk to other seniors, um, they come from my generation who were brought up not only as young people, but uh, through most of their adult life to be, uh, to, to believe that it was bad for you. It was hallucinatory. You could, uh, uh, all kinds of bad things that were conjured up. And, and uh, so it's fun for me to go and talk. Thanks to talking with you uh, several times in a way that, uh, influences other elders who are struggling, as I once was, um, to try it. In fact, I take people to the apothecarium, and uh, it's such a nifty place that it's fun to take older people and say, my God, this looks like, uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, like the showroom for Tiffany's or something. It's uh, a <laughs> It's elegant. It's classy. A lot of older folks, you know, think it. you have to go into some dark closet and get a pusher to, to sell you this stuff. And that's not the case anymore, uh, especially in California, of course. And so 
these uh, companies that are getting into the business are doing it in a first-class way. And that makes a difference with a lot of older people, who I think is a, uh, a spectacular opportunity in terms of market. Oh, absolutely. I think part of normalization is being able to present cannabis in a way that anyone can come in to your dispensary and feel comfortable. And also, I think there's a great importance around empowering people with education. Um, I know when you know, now as a senior and a peer, and then before as a social worker working with senior populations, You've not only seen a lot of what our seniors go through, but you, as you are getting older, are also experiencing it through yourself and through your loved ones and your peers. And I know it's helped you with sleep. But when you're you're looking at your peers, how do you see cannabis being able um, to help them? And and how do you envision? I, I you've been doing you know the the visits and tours, but if you look into the future. Because you're just so active and in yeah. politics and with your passions, how do you envision doing more advocacy for its use in senior populations? Well, now that I'm a, a user for my, as I said, for my sleep, um, I pay a lot of attention to uh, what the new developments are, and and uh, and and I'm trying to learn because when I talk with my peer group. Um, and I'm not talking about just 80-year-olds or 70-year-olds. I'm talking about 50-year-olds and even 40-year-olds because a lot of folks uh, have other issues, whether it's pain or anxiety. Um, many of my uh, older peers have arthritis and all that comes with that in terms of their pain. And so I bring people to introduce them because, quite frankly, oh, let me just say, people over 70 um, or even maybe is 65 are ambivalent about going to a legal uh, cannabis store because of the uh, history that they have learned in their youth and their adult lives about the use of drugs. And so uh, when they when I take them there, first of all, here's the former mayor of San Francisco walking in with them, so they feel like, well, my God, if Art will do it, right. what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? So I do a lot of that for my my older friends. Just say, hey, it's cool. Watch, come with me. Look how easy it, and it's an instant success. And then, of course, when I have a chance to talk to other groups, whatever their age is. I bring up this, uh, if it's appropriate, to, to the audience that I'm talking about, if I'm talking about health care issues, et cetera, uh, and give them my example. And having been a public figure gives it a certain kind of credibility that is, with all due respect, more powerful than Dennis Perone talking about it. And <laughs> um, in that I bring a perspective that people aren't accustomed to uh, hearing from someone like me. So it, um, I, I do that as well. I look forward in the near future for some legislator in California, because it seems like we're always on the cutting edge of social change in our state. I think the next big step 
should be, and if I were in the legislature today, I would be doing this, is to introduce legislation that requires that health insurance cover medical marijuana because it's more economical and more effective for a lot of people than the traditional drugs that are so expensive that are currently prescribed. Uh, it's not habit-forming and all those things. And so it's overdue, especially since we've uh, had uh, medical marijuana um, approved since uh, 1996 with Proposition 215 and, of course, uh, Prop 64 and, and 16. I'm sorry, 215 and 96, and, um, and then Prop 64 in, in 2016. So it's the law of the land, and it has demonstrated enough efficacy, enough value, that it's now time for uh, our insurance health plans to cover it because it can get expensive uh, for a low-income senior or a uh, working-class person if uh, they're using it for pain or sleep or any of the other uh, anxiety and, and those kinds of things. So bottom line, it's now time to add this benefit to our insurance programs for the state of California. And, as a res and if that happens in the next couple of years, and I think it should, and if I were there, I'd be doing it because it's a legal product uh, today uh, that the rest of the country will quickly uh, follow it. In fact, some other progressive states like Oregon, for example, may beat us to it, but I think we should be doing it today. And I look forward to that opportunity because having been a state legislator for 12 years and, a, and I would be delighted to go up there and be a witness uh, and tell them, you know, I was one of you and here I am uh, to tell you of my experience with this benefit, we think everyone in our state should have the opportunity to use with a, within their medical plan. Yeah, I, with people with chronic illnesses being that they do work with fixed incomes, I think it's incredibly important that we make this happen. I also feel that um, I know we're still waiting to hear back from Governor Newsom about um, the compassion bill. Because prior to legalization, we we're actually able to give cannabis to critically ill people that were on fixed incomes, which was an enormous help. Because even cannabis is very expensive now since legalization, but it was also prohibitively expensive for people on fixed incomes prior to legalization. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Sarah, I think, I think that Governor uh, Newsom is going to be a friend uh, of this issue. Uh, he he will get some. The only thing that I think will give him pause will be what the expense would be for the state of California to offer this as part of the Medi-Cal benefits for uh, Medi-Cal recipients and and all that. What's it going to cost, and can we afford it? But in terms of the value, I don't think it's going to take a, any kind of a sale for him. I having been here in San Francisco and and watched what's happened on his, in his mayoralty, which was two mayoralties after me, I don't think we need to convince him of its value. The economics of it will be what has to be addressed, and I think um, even that will be uh, 
uh, handled uh, as as we get, learn more about the costs. And speaking of costs, Sarah, um, I'm a little troubled by government uh, uh, threatening the what's the word? Um, they're taxing the hell out of this, and and they may kill the golden goose because everyone thinks this is sort of a um, a happy thing that uh, that that people don't need. But what am I trying to say? Help me with it. It, it in other words, it's it, they're adding tax after tax after tax on top of it. The state has a tax, the local government has a tax, and and they in exorbitant amounts, and that raises the price for the consumer, I think, in an unhealthy way. So we need to get real that this is not going to be the panacea for every deficit that government's ever experienced in, uh, in its daily life, that, and we may deny needy people the value of this important uh, drug um, in cannabis, because it's just been taxed to a point where it's too high for the ordinary consumer. I agree. I feel like the high taxation is a combination of people believing that there is a green rush, which no longer exists. Yeah. Um, the last time there was a green rush was when people were at great risk to be working in this work. Um, not to say there isn't a great risk now because there's so many, um, there's so much expense uh, that has to do with running a business, whether it's the permitting, the testing, the packaging, just all the hoops that people have to go through, which have actually had us have major extinction events, losing really great producers um, through yeah. this. And so we are seeing a lot of standardization, a lot of big business, and I'm afraid that we're going to also be seeing a lot of subpar product as a result of that, because only the larger organizations are going to be able to survive. Um, yep. And secondly, it's, uh, it's almost like a syntax in a way. And, and so it makes yeah. it really hard, you know? Exactly. Yeah. We, and and I, I think that the, the industry uh, and, and, and its friends must educate. And a lot of this is education, just as uh, we need to ed educate uh, providers and uh, consumers about the value of cannabis. We also need to educate it. Um, about the costs and what's in, involved in that. And that leads us to uh, another important part of the financial concern, and that is the industry needs a banking system. Yes. Uh, because today um, it is helter-skelter is the best way I can think of it. Maybe you have a better term for it. <laughs> but, uh, no, I agree the completely. Notion of, yeah, it's, it, and, and, uh, and, and the big banks won't touch it because of federal over federal. Uh, hostility, and and so uh, it is a untenable situation to see these uh, these uh, um, stores, so to speak, walk, carrying their bags of cash all over the place to try to put it in a safe place. Just that's. It's time to address that fast. We should be able to fix that easily. Yeah, you would think so. And, and that's one of the things, too, that I always reflect on as well with just even people visiting dispensaries. When we're looking at cash-based businesses, that doesn't create a safe environment for people who are coming to dispensaries because they can be seen as targets. Exactly. 
Exactly. We have so much work to do. I guess you know, <laughs> as somebody who's been, you know, a big part of advocacy, you've, you've done a lot of cutting edge advocate work in your time. Um, how do you, what advice would you give for us as citizens to help advocate for this change? Well, we need, we need, we need some champions. We need to identify people in the legislature where these laws are changed or made or enacted. And we need to identify several people uh, in both houses of the legislature to who would be our champions that we would support. And I think that the uh, industry needs to be developing not only their own professional lobby that comes from people like yourself who are health experts, who uh, understand and can teach people about this in the legislature who are going to make these decisions. But we also need a consumer lobby. That is users, elderly people, uh, young people, anyone who, who needs the benefit of this medical uh, product uh, to be willing to make the effort to write the letters and send the emails and uh, go to the Capitol and tell their story. I am going to do that so that people see that the medical users and the recreational users, for that matter, are ordinary people. They're not some hippy-dippy uh, smoker, but just someone who is trying to get relief from whatever is uh, troubling them that this is applicable to and uh, um, make it something that is affordable and covered by insurance and um, also um, product reliable. Quite frankly, there have been occasions in the last two years that I've been uh, using these capsules I've gotten when uh, my favorite runs out. Uh, sometimes there's uh, there's shortages in the different um, stores when I and I have to go around all over the city. And then nobody has it, and they give me some other product that doesn't have the same impact, even though on the label it says it does. And I'm told when I ask about this, sometimes the labs are not as the laboratories that that all have to approve every one of these, um, sometimes are not as reliable as some of the better ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have, a, we have a lot of work to do with standardization and calibration, I'm afraid. Um, yeah. and, and I'm so glad that, oh, thank you for saying about, you know, speaking up and writing letters, because I know, like, especially when legalization passed and then came into being after we had some time to set up the foundations, we had a lot of people who were really upset. And one of the things that I mentioned to them is, you know, you as a citizen, you have to get active and you have to let yeah. the legislator legislature know your piece because they need to know that there are voters out there that have strong opinions about this. That's right. And, and uh, statewide, they got a pretty good indication of that with two propositions that I mentioned earlier, one for the medical and one for recreational, that won. Mm -hmm. So the and majority of people in the state of California have voted that this is something they think is useful 
for those who want to use it or need it. And uh, it shouldn't be a hard issue to um, pass in the legislature if we get organized and put together a sound, competent informational package with the advocacy that comes from people power. Right. And that these aren't people that are just coming out to vote on cannabis issues. These are active members of society that vote on a lot of stuff, including seats. Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And just going into policy more when we're talking about like the opioid epidemic and and things like that, you know, we have we have a big problem with federal housing and medicinal cannabis use, because even now people who live in Section 8 housing, they can they can have they can have a problem with opiates and that's totally okay but if they're if they're making a healthier choice and using cannabis in lieu of opiates or some a lot of people actually had assistance with their opioid addiction using cannabis they can lose their homes outrageous outrageous uh, in this day and age it it was outrageous in any day and age but in this day and age, when we know so much about it, uh, and there are even enough studies for that purpose, at least, maybe some people want to see more studies about specific ailments uh, and the use of cannabis. But there is enough data out there so that the Department of Housing and Urban Development or, or any local housing authority can easily justify um, eliminating those kinds of uh, regulations because they're they're uh, wrong, they're incorrect, and um, um, people should be allowed to use it. And and uh, I can't believe though today. Are you suggesting that in California that can happen, or in some of these other states where? It's not quite as progressive as it is here. In California as well, especially because really? it's under federal jurisdiction. Yeah. I see. And yeah. th- then that impacts, you know, especially black and brown communities. Yeah. And Good we're, point. We're Good looking, point. Yeah. And then looking at policy now with the way it's making it really hard for people to have legitimate cannabis businesses, we're, we're not creating situations that are ripe for equity. We're still seeing that... You know, we looked at legalization as a way for people to be able to come out of the shadows, to have legitimate businesses, but they're not able Mm -hmm. to afford to do this. And so we're still seeing racial discrepancies in the field as well. And when we're looking at people in the illicit market, you're still seeing a lot of black and brown people going to jail and getting fined for, you know, what other people are doing and and making a viable living off of. That is so tragic. It is so tragic. And uh, I'm so sorry to hear that because uh, it just shouldn't be the case. And hopefully that'll change soon. And I'm looking forward to participating in any efforts that come up to make that change. Well, I know that historically you have done a lot of work um, to to change that direction. I, I was yeah. actually looking at your bio and I was looking at the consent degree degree that you um, agreed with that opened the way for hiring promotion of African Americans and women in the fire department. Just one of many yeah. things that you've done. That was in nineteen yeah, in nineteen eighty eight. The a um the federal court um 
had um, issued a decision that the uh, San Francisco Fire Department was out of control. That's what the court said, out of control, which is a remarkable phrase for a court to say, uh, was out of control in dealing with racism and sexism in the fire department. Uh, I remember my first year <clears throat> being called in to the court by the federal court judge saying to me, <laughs> um, and it was uh, the Honorable Marilyn Patel, a federal court judge, who said, Mr. Mayor, I know this is your, you just got here. You're a new mayor. Uh, I followed Mayor Feinstein after 10 years, and she said that uh, your fire department is out of control. Those were the words she used, and that's what was in the headlines the next day in uh, the San Francisco Chronicle. And, um, and as I began to look at that, uh, she was absolutely right. Uh, there were cases where new women uh, firefighters came into the firehouse and found their lockers and the room they slept in if because it was a smaller private room for the women as opposed to where the men were was stuffed to from floor to ceiling wall to wall with feminine hygiene products as a protest to that woman coming into that room wow totally unacceptable and um, uh, uh, that's what I was faced with, and we began to make changes. I changed the fire chief. I changed the number of uh, requirements, and um, at the, I'm very proud to say that at the end of the four years that I served, that same judge said, again, quote, the fire department's in good hands because we were making – we had made those changes to make – uh, women and minorities uh, effective. And today we've had, we have our second woman who is the fire chief. They couldn't even get in 30 years ago when I first came in, and now they're the fire chief. And this is our second in a row. Uh, and prior to that, we've had uh, black fire chiefs and brown deputy chiefs and so on. So it's a new day in the San Francisco Fire Department, but some of the old problems still exist from time to time. The chief or the commission have to come down on some bad actors who still haven't gotten the message. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a, a lot of a lot of work that has to be done. I mean, in I've seen a lot of change. We've seen a lot of changes in the past 10 to 20 years and there's so much more work to go I really feel like and this is this is something that you'll hear me say time and time again that our work in cannabis is one of those opportunities to change the lens in which we see the world how we yep. how we deal with you know the critically ill um, it, just the fact that being poor has almost become a crime um, creating more opportunities to engage young minds and to create abundance for many different areas and for people coming from all walks of life. We can look at the concept of 
Um, it's not bad to make money, but it should be done ethically and compassionately, giving back to the community. And how do we look at that in a way that support that, that business supports our communities? Because we really need, especially in this day and age, to be leveling the playing field. You're absolutely right. And, and in the process, if the cannabis industry can do that, and it's a big mountain to climb, um, but there's a lot of good people in the industry who I think have, like you, who have the uh, right frame of mind and the commitment and the skills to, to pull it off. In contrast to some of these big pharmaceutical companies who invent some kind of a new drug and create a cost that it makes it impossible for even wealthy people to use never mind the ordinary middle-class citizen or the poor. Um, and we've seen instances where the prices uh, are, as I said, impossible and 500% increases simply because they can make, they can demand it uh, for the product that they're putting out on the market. I hope that the uh, cannabis industry can show the pharmaceutical industry uh, how to do it in a way that is profitable, but also compassionate and humane and fair to the ordinary consumer. I, I have great hope that we'll be able to do that. I, some the colleagues that I work with are passionate and amazing, and they, they are all around the United States. Um, and with you know seasoned, passionate veterans like yourself helping us, I really believe that anything is possible. I do too. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thinking that in the next five years, we're going to see some major breakthroughs, uh, especially, uh, and I hope I'm not being too political here, but I am a politician. So you're going to have to, <laughs> Hey, in, in, in I was ready for that. <laughs> yeah. In 2020, if we can make the right change at the top in the white house, I think, that someone from the Democratic side will make that happen uh, right away or soon after they take over. That is to normalize the use of medical marijuana in this country from one state to the other. Uh, recreational may take a little longer, but that will come too. But in the next four years, starting with the election a year from November, we have a chance to really make it happen. I agree. I, I think that education is educating our representatives and politicians is a big part of breaking the stigma. Because when I've gone to other states where they're talking about policy, a lot of the policy is built on stigma, not fact. And we, we really need to get away from that because it's, it's harming our people. That's right. And quite frankly, I have a lot of fun, I must say. When I walk into a room and I talk about my usage of it, I say, my God, do you hear what he's saying? That's the former mayor of San Francisco talking about his use of cannabis to sleep. I love that. And uh, it's fun to see the looks on their faces because you see a change sort of subtly coming over. They say, well, it must be okay then. Mm-hmm. Conversation uh, normalization. And I think that there are a lot of, frankly, a lot of closeted politicians who may have some of the same problems that I have, um, even though they may be a lot younger with sleep or pain or whatever uh, they uh, ails them that are using it 
but they haven't come out yet because they're in a state where it could cost them politically. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you should start a club. (laughs) 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 They can trust you. (laughs) You know, you can give them advice and and you won't disclose that they're using it until they feel comfortable enough to come out of the cannabis closet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much Art, for being on the show with me today. As always, I, I just always enjoy seeing you and talking with you. You just, I always learn so much from you. And, and well, you're just a lot of fun to talk to as well. Well, thank you very much. And I thank the world of you because you were my first educator. I remember walking into the apothecarium and I didn't know anything one from the other. And I said, this is the first time I've ever been here. And they said, well, let us get our education officer here. And out you came with your smiley, pretty face, and I felt instantly comfortable. And uh, you're sweet enough every now and then when I have trouble, you give me the right advice, and uh, I go from there. So I'm very happy anytime that I can be helpful to you in your efforts to educate not only the people here in San Francisco and the Bay Area, but all over the country where you travel. Uh, you can count on me. Oh, thank you for being a friend and colleague. It's it's just such a joy, such a joy. You're welcome. So you're welcome. Thank you. And and Art, if there is is there uh, is there a website or any way that if people wanted to contact you about having conversations about cannabis advocacy or any policy work that they would reach you at? Yeah, I'm on Facebook. They can just look me up on Facebook. Okay, wonderful. So. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Art Agnos, for being on Planted with Sarah Pion. Uh, Everyone stay tuned next month for we will have episode number three. As I said, every time that we get together, it's a new conversation with people who are impactful, having opinions about cannabis, and we are looking to make the world a safer, more legal, accessible place. Thank you so much.